Growing up in Southern California, I spent most of my childhood outdoors. And so I was intrigued when I discovered a website called streetplay.com. Streetplay.com is dedicated to documenting all the great city and outdoor games that we knew so well as kids, that we made up as kids back in the days, perhaps some of you remember before video games, when people went outside and did things. (laughs) Games like stickball and handball and street football. And uh, my all-time favorite, Buck Buck. Anybody ever play Buck Buck? You know what Buck Buck is? It's a very painful game, (laughs) but a good one. There's a section on this website, streetplay.com, that is entitled Rules and Rights. And it goes through all the rules and rights of these different street games. Uh, For example, single word rules like car. If you call out car, no matter where you're at in the game, everybody disperses to the side of the road till the car goes by, and then we come back and pick up right where we were. So car was an important one. But probably the most important is the do-over. Do-over! I need to read this to you. I thought it was so well written. They write on the website, Sometimes passions were too strong, convictions too deep, perspectives too contrasting to reach an agreement on a call. Still, it was understood that unless the opposing team was being absolutely unreasonable or cheating, preserving friendships and even more importantly, continuing the game took precedence over a specific play. After the proper amount of heated discussion had taken place, one of the players would finally extend the proverbial fig leaf by offering his opponent a do-over, as in, you can do it again. The do-over was one of childhood's most powerful rights, for it exerted our dominion over the laws of space and time. The clock was rolled back. The game was restored to its exact status as before the contested event, and play was resumed. Yes, it is with fond memories that we recall the do-over, or in the do-over, a divine method of resolution, and contemplate the untold blessings it could bring if it were somehow extended into our contemporary lives. Well, it has been. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. The do-over covenant. In Jeremiah, this new covenant This promise is given exclusively, note this, exclusively to Israel. It's unconditional. It's a covenant that the Lord has made and the Lord will keep in spite of all the past rebellion of the people, the rejection of His chosen ones. And the Bible teaches that at some time, a time that will come sooner, I think, than we think, Jesus is going to return to establish this new covenant promised to Israel. Some have claimed the new covenant promise for the church. 
Even to the exclusion of Israel, some say this promise was given then but is ours now. But there are some problems with this perspective. And before we get into the heart of this do-over covenant, we need to use our minds. And I invite you this morning for a few minutes to think with me, to be thinking believers, to be intelligent Christians. I know you can do it. And non-Christians, if there are any of you in here this morning, let me just tell you, Christianity is not a blind faith to a fool's paradise. It is an intelligent, reasonable, well-thought, well-understood faith. It's a reasoned relationship. I want you to keep a finger there in Jeremiah 31 and flip over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, as we think through for a few moments this new covenant... Who it's for, what it means, what's it about. And the Hebrew writer, in Hebrews chapter 8, all the way over in the New Testament, close to the end, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, he writes as follows. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. Didn't we just read that? <laughs> Why reread it again? I want you to think this through. Some things to know about the new covenant. Number one, if you're a note taker, jot these down. There is a singular provision. The singular provision of the new covenant. This covenant is not like the one God made with their fathers, verse 9. It is unconditional. That's the singular provision. It is unconditional. The old covenant of Moses had 613 provisions that needed to be kept. This one has but one. It is unconditional. It is kept by the Lord. The new covenant is not dependent on anything Israel does other than accept it. It's that simple. This amazing provision automatically negates the keeping of an external law. It automatically wipes out all personal interpretations of that law. Ray and I were talking this morning and he made this comment, it's written on the heart. And because it's written on the heart, there's no need for us to try and figure it out. We will understand. We should know it. We should just get it. And so Talmud is rendered obsolete. Because you don't need any rabbinical scholars to sit down and write and try to interpret this law, this new covenant. It is a heart-level covenant that God writes into and onto the hearts of those who will accept it. The covenant is done by God and by God alone. As he says in verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
So there's no room for misunderstanding. There's no room for dispute. There's no room for debate. This new covenant of the Lord is absolutely unconditional. But secondly, note this. Not only the singular provision, but the specified parties. And pay close attention to this. The recipients of the new covenant are according both to Jeremiah 31 and to Hebrews chapter 8, quoting Jeremiah 31, the recipients are the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now hang with me on this for just a moment. As the Hebrew writer, and I still personally believe it's Paul, some would disagree, but as he quotes the ancient prophecy of Jeremiah, he doesn't replace the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the church. He doesn't add a caveat saying this now, once given to Israel, now belongs to the church. In fact, nowhere in Scripture can you find it transferred from Israel to the church. But isn't that implied, someone might say? I mean, after all, it's quoted here in the New Testament. Twice. Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. So therefore, because it's in the New Testament, it's for New Testament people, therefore, shouldn't it be for the church? Well, let me just ask you a question. In which New Testament book is it quoted? Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, written by a Hebrew, to Hebrews, explaining in very Hebrew terms, the Hebrew Savior. It's one of the most Jewish places in the entire New Testament, although, in my opinion, most of the New Testament is Jewish. And comes through Jewish understanding and Hebrew thought. It's all about what Yeshua, the Hebrew Savior, did first, and don't miss me on this, first for the Jewish people, and then for the Gentile. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So the recipients of this covenant are the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The administrator of this covenant is the Lord God Himself. The administrator. Look over in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning about verse 15. Hebrews 9, 15. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant. Wait a minute, for what reason? Go back to verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, Mashiach, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason He is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant... Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. A last will and testament. You make a will, you don't expect it to go into play until you're dead. Right? He goes on and he says the covenant is valid only when men are dead. Verse 17. It is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken to Moses, to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and the goats and the water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And that's quoting Exodus 24.8 and Matthew 
26-28 refers to it as well. In the same way, He sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. According to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should or would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have had needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without sin to those who eagerly await Him. The sole administrator of the covenant is the Lord. And as the sole administrator of the covenant, what does that mean? It means God's blood was required. God's blood, the only way to put this covenant into effect, as the Hebrew writer tells us, is for God's own life to end. For God to die. For God's blood to be spilt. For all things to be cleansed and made righteous. That this new covenant could go into effect. And so, on the night He was betrayed, on that Thursday night, there at what we call the Last Supper, there with the Apostles, Luke 22.19 says, When He had taken some bread and given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And in the same way, He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. This is it. Now, thinking Jews sitting around the table that night had they been paying attention, would have heard Jesus say, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, is fulfilled right here. By my blood. As you drink this, you will drink it to remember the blood I am about to spill for you. Paul picks up on this. 1 Corinthians 11.25 He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. The singular provision of this new covenant is that it is unconditional. It is something God does. The specified parties are the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the recipients. The administrator is the Lord God. And finally... I want you to note the simple position of the New Covenant. The simple position, it's new. Simple, right? It's new. In other words, it follows the Old Covenant. There's an old one, there's a new one. The one that Hebrew writer says about the old one is becoming obsolete, it's growing old, it's ready to disappear, Hebrews 8.13. God isn't replacing Israel with the church. He's replacing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. Do you understand that? I mean, that seems awfully clear and simple, and yet, as a kid growing up, I didn't see it that way. I was taught the New Covenant is for the church. 
Israel had their chance. Now it's ours. And all the blessings and all the promise and everything that goes into this new covenant is for us, Christians. And it's no longer for Israel. And yet we can't get around these simple truths. It's to the house of Judah and to the house of Israel. And even in quoting it, the Hebrew writer specifies the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Christians, what is our old covenant? We don't have one. There is no old covenant for believers in Jesus. And some might say, well, well, Rick, what about the Noahic covenant? And the covenant God made with Noah back in Genesis chapter 9. That's not a covenant for Christians. That's a covenant for mankind. That's something God promised to do. The rainbow in the sky. Good news. We're not going to get flooded today. It makes no sense, listen, it makes no sense for a Christian to refer to a new covenant when no former covenant was made with us. The new covenant is new for Israel. It is new for Israel. But this is what you've got to know and understand. Physically speaking, nationally speaking, the new covenant is and remains exclusive to Israel. Spiritually speaking and personally speaking, the new covenant is inclusive to anyone by faith. Which is absolutely mind-boggling to me. It is remarkable. The promise that is going to be fully restored by Israel or, or, or for Israel when Jesus comes into the world can now be realized by anyone when Jesus comes into your heart. When the new covenant gets written on the heart. How does that happen? When does that happen? When a person is born again. By the Spirit of the living God. A new covenant gets written in here. New compared to the old one that was given to Israel. The old one that they couldn't keep. The old one that none of us could if we tried. Replaced by the new one that will be fully realized, fully seen, fully manifested in this world. But right now, becomes real in my heart by faith. And this is something God does that is just amazing. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Yesterday at, at Doreen's memorial service, there's one thing said that to me stood out above all others, uh, and, and there were wonderful things said and shared about our sister Doreen. But the one thing that said that just shined like a light in the whole room was when one lady in the back said about Doreen, she loved Jesus. I heard that and I thought, what else needs to be said? Right, Brian? She loves Jesus. And Paul says, everything else is rubbish by comparison. He says... That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He makes me righteous in this new covenant that wasn't even my covenant in the first place, and yet I get drawn into it. And Paul later writes in Romans 11.17, If some of the branches, speaking of Israel, were broken off, And you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not become arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. 
And so I have come to learn and understand, and I will never forget that the roots of this new covenant go back to Israel. And I am blessed spiritually and personally to be grafted in to what is exclusively a physically, nationally given covenant to the people of Israel. I get to be part of this. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Israel's exclusive do-over becomes in Jesus Christ an all-inclusive do-over. So what's our place? What does this mean for us as followers of Jesus? What do we do with this? What is our place in the New Covenant? The only other time in the New Testament when the New Covenant is named is when Paul is talking to the Gentile church at Corinth. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me make sure we got this ground covered. That there was an old covenant, unkeepable by Israel. They failed in it, as God knew they would. The law was added, Paul says, so the sin might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So the old covenant was given to Israel. It was failed. Not on God's part, but on Israel's part. God comes along and says, there will be a new covenant. I'm going to write it on your hearts. I'm going to write it on your minds. I'm going to make this happen. In the blood of Jesus, the new covenant begins to take effect. It will be fully realized for Israel, nationally. It will be fully realized physically. It will be a seen, manifested thing in days soon to come. But from the moment Christ's blood was shed, it becomes personally offered to you and to me. But we have a place in this now. Now we're part of this epic thing that God has been doing, has been laying out since the beginning. We have a specific role. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2. You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Does that sound a little New Covenant-ish? It should. It's written on the heart. But listen, he goes on. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What does that mean? Gang, listen, don't miss this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I am a servant of the new covenant. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a servant of the new covenant. You are a servant of the new covenant. Drill that into your minds. Get it into your hearts. Because this is where we go heart level on the matter. What does it mean to be a servant of the new covenant? How am I a a servant of... Well, how do you serve a covenant? Go back to Jeremiah 31. A knock comes at your door. You open it. Someone hands you a manila envelope containing legal documents and they say to you, you've been served. And they walk away. Now, that could be a bad thing. (laughs) could be a subpoena to show up in court. It could be notification that you're being sued. It could be divorce papers. 
It could be some awful thing. But they could also hand you that manila envelope, that document, say you've been served, and you discover it's a last will and testament naming you as the sole receiver of a great inheritance. Servants of the new covenant. Listen. We serve a covenant that is a great inheritance. We serve the covenant. It's a covenant we get to bring. We get to explain because we already experience it in Christ Jesus. As servants of the new covenant, we are bringers of the new covenant. We are the ones saying, you've been served. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, the ministry of reconciliation is the serving of the new covenant. The ministry of reconciliation is the serving of the new covenant. We say to Israel, you've been served. We say to the non-believer, you have been served. You've been served. The new covenant. And watch this. We serve the new covenant in two ways. Two ways. Verse 33 of chapter 31. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And the Lord describes it. He says, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Too many Christians fail to see that you've already got this new covenant going on. That it's not something we expect in the future. It is a now event for you and for me. We are living as new covenant people. We are living letters. That's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3.3. You are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We are living documents. And that's the first thing to note. We serve the covenant as living documents. As we move, as we walk through life, as we interact with people, we are living documents of the new covenant that God has proclaimed. Written on our hearts. Testifying of the new covenant. Romans 8 verse 2 says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of human flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We're living documents. We talk a lot about walking according to the Spirit. Why does it matter? Why is it so important? There is almost a selfish attitude, and I just confess this myself, perhaps you can relate to this, a selfish attitude that we take when we come to the Scriptures and when we think about walking in the Spirit. We come at it with the perspective that says, I'm walking in the Spirit, what does that do for me? What does that do in me? How does that affect me? How is God sanctifying me? Do you hear there's so much me in that? But if we're living letters, if we're living documents, then we are to be read by others. The whole point is that other people see what God has done. How He has written the new covenant on my heart and seeing that in me become desirous of it. They want a part of this. 
And as a living document, I say, all you have to do is come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. In Galatians 5, after describing a literal fruitfulness of life, a life lived according to the Spirit, and you know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. After describing all this, Paul writes the following, Galatians 5.24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And this is where it gets incredibly personal. Some say, well, I keep trying to get my act together, but I just can't do it. Someone says, I I know I'm drinking too much, but it, it it helps me to relax. Others say, I'd love to clean up my mouth, but the words just keep slipping out. Some say, I don't want to keep visiting those websites, but the porn is too strong. Others would say, I'm no good. I'm no good. I'm no good. Baby, I'm no good. (laughs) Listen. Living documents. Listen. Stop wallowing and start following. Stop whining and start aligning. Stop trying and start relying. I got more. This is my favorite one. Stop praying and start praying. It's amazing how much as a Christian I worry about my own walk with Jesus and how it impacts my own life. And the New Covenant declares we are living documents to be read by the world. Not so that we can sit in our homes and struggle through our own issues. You see, you can't get it right. You're not going to be able to stop all this sin behavior. You can't do that. So stop trying and start relying. You know where the power comes from to overcome a drinking problem? To overcome a language problem? To overcome a porn problem? To overcome any of the stuff that that people may struggle with? Whatever your issues may be, the power does not come from your will. It comes from the Spirit of the living God. So begin praying, and I mean now, Lord Jesus, would you take this from me? Would you free me from this sin? Would you empower me to overcome this struggle? And make that your daily prayer, and watch the sin go away. Well, that sounds too simple, Rick. Yeah, I know. But it works. Because it's His power, it's not my power. And we waste so much time in in Christian circles talking with each other and sharing about how to overcome sin and, and setting up programs to overcome sin and going to conferences on overcoming sin. And all we have to do is stop trying so hard and start asking the Spirit of God to remove the sin. Which, by the way, He's already removed by the blood of Jesus but asking God to empower us to do what we cannot do. Get our eyes off of ourselves, we've said before, and onto Jesus where they belong. Which is why the Hebrew writer says in that so well-known verse, let's lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Because even as we are being sanctified by Christ, we are living documents. Note that. Remember that. The beauty of the new covenant written on the heart is a changed person who now is read by other people. And as others read us, come to realize 
I can have this. I can be in this relationship with Jesus. Look at verse 34. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. That's how it will be. In the coming days, but it's not how it is right now. Right? So until then, we serve the New Covenant as living documents, and secondly, we serve the New Covenant as learned neighbors. As learned neighbors. See, the key phrase, I think, in verse 34 is, they will all know Me. They will all know Me. When the New Covenant comes into effect in the heart of a born-again person, you know Him. You will continue to know Him. You will know Him more and more. You know Him. Christians, do you know Him? And if you know Him, can you tell your neighbors about Him? I'm not asking, do you have a five-step plan of evangelism? And I'm not asking, do you know enough Scripture to be able to take someone through a Bible study to see them saved? No, I'm asking, do you know Him? And if you know Jesus, do your neighbors know you know? Have you talked to them about it? Listen, when God gave the Old Covenant, only the priests could minister before the Lord in the temple, right? The Mosaic Law, the priests, the Levites, they were the go-betweens, they were the mediators, they went into the temple, they took care of all the temple services. Only the high priest could once a year come before the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. The priests, in other words, stood between the people and their God. As learned neighbors, it's completely different in the New Covenant. What do you mean, Rick? 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And Peter is talking to Gentiles there. You once were not a people, but now you are a people, he says. You are a royal priesthood. What does that mean? Listen, we serve in the opposite direction of the Levites. We're a different kind of priesthood now under the new covenant. How so? The Levites served the Lord for the people. We serve the people for the Lord. As living documents read by those, as learned neighbors, we serve the new covenant by bringing the knowledge of God to a spiritually illiterate world. And as Steve shared this morning, in many cases to a spiritually illiterate church. Living documents, learned neighbors saying, know the Lord. How can we say know the Lord unless we know the Lord? But if you're in the New Covenant, you do. If you're a Christian here this morning, would you just raise your hand up high? Alright. What if I told you that waiting outside in the rain was a one-to-one ratio of people standing in the parking lot right now wanting to know about Jesus? And I'm going to release you, and we're all going to go out, and you're going to couple up one-to-one with everybody out in the parking lot, and you're going to tell them what you know about Jesus. Could you do it? Then why... 
then why aren't there twice as many people sitting in here this morning? I hate guilt stuff like that. It's not about being throwing out guilt though. Gain. The ratio is far greater than one to one. If we're to take the population of Oak Harbor and the population of Anacortes, the ratio is far greater of people who do not know the Lord versus people who do. Living documents. Learned neighbors. I ask you, do you know the Lord well enough to lead someone else to know Him? Who was the last person who came to faith in Jesus because of your relationship with them? And please don't feel guilty about that. Convicted would be fine. Guilty, no. The idea is to stop us in our tracks and say, now wait a minute. When was the last time I intentionally talked to someone about Jesus to offer them the hope of the new covenant that I now live in? I believe in these last days Jesus wants us to be more intentional in our interaction with people. There are all kinds of ways we serve the Lord. I get that. All kinds of things we do for the kingdom, for the church. But no Christian has the right to say evangelism is not my ministry. It's called the Great Commission. And it belongs to every believer in Jesus. That we make disciples. That we share what we know about the Lord. Well, what if I tell someone about the Lord? What if I say, know the Lord, and they don't? Your job has been done. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit does that. We don't do that. We just, we're just living documents. We're learned neighbors who know the Lord. John writes in 1 John 2.20, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And this letter, by the way, is general to followers of Jesus. He says in 1 John 2.27, As for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in Him. What does that mean? It means everybody has a part to play in this. They all will know Me. When we see the new covenant fulfilled in Israel, there won't be a man, woman, or child on earth who does not know Jesus Christ. Until it is fulfilled in the physical sense in Israel, as it is spiritually fulfilled in us right now, there should not be a man, woman, or child in Christ Jesus who don't really know Him. And if we know Him, we talk about Him. We share Him with others. You have an anointing. Now, it's come to my attention just this last week that some might think, perhaps, that the shepherds or leaders or pastors of this fellowship are in a different place than the rest. Bull! That is absolute baloney. I've shared, maybe it's just been a while since I've said this. I sit up here and I, and I teach the Word, and you might be tempted, unless you know me well, you might be tempted to walk out and go, boy, those are just such words of wisdom. Where does Pastor Rick get that? <laughs> the only reason I can talk about anything of Jesus is because of Him, and because it's His Word, and because it's His Spirit. And when we call the shepherds up at the end of services to go to the back or come up to the front to pray with people, it actually has been said that some feel uncomfortable going to pray with them because they just they're, they're, they're in a different place than we are. No, we're not. 
We are all in the same place, gang. We're all sinners saved by Jesus. We're all flawed people. Man, don't don't elevate anyone. Don't put someone up above you. Don't wait for the white smoke to come out of the chapel. And, and I, I'm not I'm not kidding about that. We have a problem of human worship in the world. And we have a problem of feeling like we have to have some kind of mediators. And so we put red robes on people. And we put big hats on people. And we say, this person now is between me and God. And the Bible says, no way. Amen. Jesus is the mediator of the covenant. Nobody else. Amen. Which means there's no one between us and the Father but the Son. Amen. Which means every single one of us are priests of this covenant. Amen. And we don't wait around for the shepherds to pray it out. We don't wait around for the pastors to get out and do their job. What do we pay them for anyway? (laughs) We do it. Each and every one of us. When we invite you to prayer on Thursday nights, why are we inviting you to prayer? Because we need people praying. All of God's people. Oh, it's a shepherd thing. No, it's not. It is a body thing. 7 o'clock, Thursday night. And the Lord is calling us hand in hand, arm in arm, brother and sister together to engage this world with the truth of Jesus Christ that we all know. We all know. As living documents and learned neighbors. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul lists five shepherding positions given to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And you might look at those, you could look at that list and say, well, see, those are, those are the, the go-betweens, you know. That's the spiritual hierarchy. There's the people, the masses, and then there's the five shepherding positions, and then there's Jesus, and, and on up the hierarchical line. Not so. As a matter of fact, my friends, we absolutely here at the bridge reject the notion of spiritual hierarchy, except Jesus Himself. Amen. Ephesians 4.12 tells us the reason for those five leadership positions, those five shepherding gifts given to the body. Paul says they are for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Why? So the entire body can serve the new covenant. Not just some leadership. Not just some man-designed leadership to function within the church. It is the call of the church as living documents, visual letters from the Lord, readable by all around us who see something different, who read a grace upon us, a love of Christ upon us that is unlike anything else in the world. And by the way, it is. You don't have to do anything to the message of Jesus. There is no message like it on the planet. So live it. And as learned neighbors, we're the ones who tell everyone, know the Lord. You've been served. Knock on your neighbor's door this afternoon. They open the door. You've been served. (laughs) Hand yourself as that manila envelope. Be the living documents. The physical national blessings of the new covenant are for Israel, and they are fast approaching. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. But the spiritual blessings, the personal blessings of the new covenant are already available. And they are in us. 
And we as living letters and learned neighbors are called to serve the new covenant as tangible testimonies that God so loves the world. Now listen again to how the new covenant concludes. Verse 34. He says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. I quote again, the do-over is that divine method of resolution and the untold blessings it could bring if it were somehow extended into our contemporary lives. The do-over. And it has been. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Luke 23.34 Paul wrote in Colossians 1.13 He rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred to us or us too, the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But i got to tell you, there's one problem with the do-over. There's one issue, at least from a human perspective, out on the street, there in the neighborhood. If the do-over was employed, and the team who got the do-over won the game, The do-over could always be brought up again, ripping the joy of victory out of the winning team. Well, you wouldn't have won if not for the do-over. And here's where the new covenant is different. Because we are capable of grace and forgiveness, but we have a hard time forgetting what other people have done, don't we? I can forgive you, but I'm going to remember. And the Lord says something so radical, so amazing. It is the final seal on the new covenant following forgiveness. It is forgetfulness. Their sin, I will remember no more. Lord, I'm so sorry I did this again. Did what again? What do you mean again? Forgotten. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. All of the idolatry of Israel, eternally erased, God will not remember it. All the rebellion of Judah, definitively deleted, gone from the hard drive. All of your sins and mine, forever forgotten. That's the do-over covenant of the Lord. That's the new covenant. And it is our covenant to share.